No matter what you do, some people are never going to like you. They may like you initially, but then for whatever reason, they go off you. You're never quite sure what you've done wrong, if anything, or whether you've offended them, or you haven't quite met their expectations. But it becomes pretty obvious that that something has changed. Something between you has shifted, has altered. And you sense suspicion and frustration and tension or, or maybe even coldness. And that's a tough place to be. It's uncomfortable. And, and whenever that person is close to you or is in close proximity to you on a regular basis, maybe you work with them, maybe you go to church with them, maybe you live with them. If that's the case, it can be particularly hard. I don't know if anybody can identify with that. I know I can. And here's what I've discovered, and most of us get this. It's not possible to control the way others see us and react to us. We might want to control their attitude, words, and behavior towards us, but we can't. Now, it could be that that we've done something wrong or or we've said something to threaten the relationship. And and therefore, if that's the case, we need to admit it. We need to deal with it. We need to do a bit of honest heart and soul searching if, if that's the case. But there are other times when we're at a loss to know what we've done wrong. A real loss. Well, this evening as we re-engage with David's story in 1 Samuel, we encounter a situation where this happens between two people, two key people. But it involves and it impacts lots of others, as is often the case. But the way that it plays out between these two individuals is shocking and tragic. And so if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's page 290 in in the Red Pew Bibles. Now last week Drew brilliantly took us through the uh, David and Goliath incident as he encouraged and provoked us to consider how do we actually see things? Do we approach life and the challenges of life from a human or from a godly perspective? How, How do you tend to see things? Through human eyes or through God's eyes? Are you gripped by fear or fueled by faith? And whenever you do come up against stuff, difficult stuff, big stuff, do you come at those things in your own strength or do you come at them in the name of the Lord Almighty El Shaddai? It was such good teaching last Sunday night. And and if you weren't here, you really did miss a treat. But last week at the end of 1 Samuel 17, if you just flick back and look at verse 57, we left the story last week with David standing before King Saul with Goliath's head in his hand. That's the way chapter 17 ends. It's a gruesome scene. But Saul wants to know the identity of the giant slayer 
actually he doesn't. He wants to know the identity of the giant slayer's father. Who, who's this guy's dad? And what I want us to do is pick up, in a sense, from where we left off at the beginning of then chapter 18. And David, we find in these first five verses of this chapter, has a good day. Or he has a good run of days. Let's read verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, standing before him, giant's head in his hand, who's this guy's dad? David tells him. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. Now, whatever David had said to Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, is is taken by it. And he's also taken by David. And a friendship begins here. This is the first time Jonathan's been mentioned in the David story. He's mentioned before chapter 16, but this is the first time he's mentioned in the David story. And as he hears David speaking to his father, Jonathan's taken by him. And a friendship begins that is going to become legendary. Twice in the space of the opening three verses, look at it, we read that Jonathan loved David as himself. End of verse 2, end of verse 3. Now I know that some people have read all sorts of implications into this relationship. And have actually questioned its very nature. But all I want to say at this stage anyway, and, and I may come back to this. But all I want to say at this stage is that to love someone as yourself is an incredibly God honoring thing to do. After all, what what is the greatest commandment or commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so in a sense, Jonathan is just doing that. He's just loving this guy that he's met as himself. And as well as Jonathan, we find out that that Saul here is is pretty taken by David. In verse 2, we read that that Saul takes him into his house. And then it says he wouldn't let David return to his family, Jesse, in Bethlehem. You see, the king wants to hang on to David. He wants to keep him close at hand, which is nice. But given how this develops, it probably should have been an early warning that, that Saul was prone to jealousy. But that's rushing ahead. For now... It's all good. And Jonathan even takes this friendship with David to a whole other level by, it says, making a covenant with him. Now, those were significant things in those days. And and, and Jonathan follows up this covenant with a relatively extravagant act where he gives David his robe, he gives him his armor, he gives him his sword, he gives him his bow, and he gives him his belt. Which, to all intents and purposes, implies that Jonathan recognizes this guy's going to be the next king, not me. Saul sets David up over the army. This is all a great day for David, or a great run of days, as I say. So Saul sets him up over the army. David achieves immediate success. And not surprising, everybody, all the people, 
all the servants and the officers of Saul approve of David. Everybody loves, not Raymond, but David. Everybody loves him. These are good days. But that can't last forever. Life rarely runs that smoothly for anyone, and David's no exception. Despite how successful he is, despite how sordid it all seems. And so after coming home from killing the Philistine, look at verse 6. The ladies are out in force to sing, to dance, to celebrate. And the song starts well. Saul has killed his thousands. But it's the second line that jars in the ears of one of his avid listeners. David, his tens of thousands. Don't you just hate it? Maybe that's too strong. Don't you just struggle whenever others are recognized as better or more successful than you? Saul certainly did. Now, it's not that Saul wasn't recognized. I mean, he was acknowledged. They did sing about him. You've killed your thousands, Saul. But as Saul analyzed the song content, he felt threatened. And if you look at verse 8, it says there, what more can David have but the kingdom? See, Saul's starting to feel threatened by this guy. And so what Saul does here is he compares himself. Or certainly compared what others said about him. Or what they were saying about him compared to David. And, and he let that get to him. And it's understandable. But nevertheless, it's desperately dangerous. And although we're all prone to it, let, let, let's be honest about this. We all risk playing the comparison game or suffering from comparisonitis. But we need to be very careful because the potential for damage is huge. Not just to ourselves, but also to our relationships and particularly in our relationships with those we're comparing ourselves to. And how does this affect Saul? We'll look at verse 8 and verse 9. Two things. Anger, jealousy. Which is what is meant by the phrase in the NIV, from that time Saul kept a close eye on David. If you use a New Living Translation, it actually says, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Anger and jealousy. Two of the seven deadly sins take root. Do you know, it's not that long ago that, that Saul loved David. If you look back at 1 Samuel 16, 21, it says, Saul loved David very much. Now, he's filled with anger and jealousy towards him. Thing is, David's done nothing wrong. In fact, he's done everything right. And you could say he's been doing everything he's done to date for Saul. He's been serving his king, serving his boss on the battlefield, doing what he's been asked to do, but Saul doesn't like the attention he's getting, doesn't like the applause, doesn't like the credit that David is receiving, and he lets it eat away at him. And whenever those sinful vices of anger and jealousy are allowed to dig in, 
and are not challenged by and are not replaced by the godly virtues of peace and contentment, you're going to face problems. And so what happens to Saul? He implodes internally and explodes externally. And this is what happens. We see it time and time again. When things like anger and jealousy take root, sooner or later you're going to implode inside and explode externally. And things go from bad to worse. But remember, it's impossible to control how others see us. Or how they react to us. Especially whenever we're only trying to do our best and we've done nothing wrong. But where this gets really scary and difficult to take and difficult to understand is whenever those people no longer just feel threatened by us, but they take it to another level. And they actually have it in for us. And they set out to hurt us. They they set out to damage us. You see, sometimes goodness provokes opposition. And in some ways, that that shouldn't really blindside us because after all, Jesus, it says, went about doing good and yet. See, goodness can and goodness does provoke a reaction in some people. Now, hopefully none of us will ever experience what David is about to experience here, which is extreme. But there's every possibility that some of us have been and will be hurt by those who once seemed to like us. By those who even once loved us. And so how do we cope with that when that happens? Well, let's read on. I said that that Saul implodes internally, explodes externally. And in verse 11, if you look at it, he flips. He picks up a spear and he tries to pin David to the wall. This is the first of six attempts that Saul makes in David's life before David has to do a runner. Now, I know there there are difficult aspects to this story. If you look at verse 10, we read that an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul. I can't fully explain that. But all I want to say is this, that bad thoughts and bad attitudes often lead to bad actions. If we let anger and jealousy simmer within us, there's every chance that someday, one day, it's going to come spilling out. Maybe in harsh, biting, aggressive words, which are bad enough, but also in inappropriate behavior, which can be disastrous. And understandably here, what we discover is that that fear makes a reappearance. Look at verse 12. But what is surprising is it's not David that's afraid. I mean, he's just been trying to be pinned to a wall, but he's not the one who's afraid. It actually says that Saul is gripped with fear. And the reason he's gripped with fear here is enlightening. At so many levels, look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because, why? Why was he so afraid of David? Because the Lord was with him. And that phrase appears three times in this chapter. Here in verse 12, again in verse 14, and again in verse 28. And it reveals so much. Here is the reason why David coped. Here's the reason he survived and got through this. God was with him. God was a constant presence who was working out his purposes in David's life. And nothing and no one was going to derail God and his purposes in David's life. 
And as we sit here this evening, we actually have those promises in God's word that, that he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. That he's with us to the very end of the age. But that doesn't mean that life's going to be straightforward or plain sailing. David definitely wouldn't have described that as he dodged spears. As he avoided an assassination squad. As he ended up having to do a disappearing act. But God was with him. Although I'm convinced there were times when David wondered. God is with us. And as one of the psalm writers says, not David, although he will say this later on as we'll discover, God is a refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble, Psalm 46. Now notice, it's not an ever-present help from trouble. It's an ever-present help in trouble. Life is a challenge at times. It's troublesome, it's difficult, and God is with us. God is for us in every experience as he works out his purposes in our life. But that does not mean we're going to be free of trouble. But why, and some people wrestle with this, why was God with David and not with Saul? It actually says in verse 12 that God by his spirit had, had departed from Saul or God's spirit had departed from Saul. Why is that? Well, the only answer I can give is that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. You see, we know from chapter 16 that in choosing David, God had looked beyond the outward appearance and seen the condition and the state of his heart. We know from the New Testament that David is described as a man after God's own heart. We also know from the rest of the story that David doesn't have a perfect heart. I mean, it becomes compromised, as all our hearts do. But we also read from the Psalms that David has a repentant and a contrite heart. Saul, on the other hand, had a rebellious, unrepentant, self-obsessed heart that grew colder and harder by the day. And it spiraled out of control and became increasingly distant from God. And for fear of sounding like a broken record or a scratched disc or a corrupted download, above everything else, above everything else, above everything else, there's nothing more important than this. Guard your heart because it affects everything else you do. And back to the story. Saul now ratchets up the intensity of his dislike and scheming. He starts, and, and this is how it often plays out. He starts by, by drawing others into his evil intentions. Up, up to now, it's been kind of personal. But then he starts drawing others in, and he starts by drawing in his own family. Saul offers his eldest daughter, Mirab, to David in marriage only to renege on his word and actually gives her away to someone else. You see, David's heart, or Saul's heart's a mess and now his word means nothing. And then Saul discovers that his other daughter, Michal, loves David. As I said earlier, everyone does. And so Saul decides to hand her over 
to David as his wife. But Saul requests a wedding gift. Saul requests a wedding gift. It seems that it was some kind of custom in those days that to marry the king's daughter, you had to buy him a present. Kind of bride price or a dowry. Top of Saul's gift list was an unconventional choice. 100 foreskins of Philistines. And the reason? Murderous intent. Look at verse 25. Here's the reason Saul asked for this particular weird wedding gift. Now Saul planned to make David fall at the hand of this Philistines. Saul was convinced that as as David went to get this wedding gift, he was going to be killed. If I can't pin him to a wall, somebody else will take him down. But it doesn't happen. David doesn't just deliver the required gift. He doubles it. And he comes back with 200 Philistine foreskins. No idea what Saul did to him. And Michal becomes David's wife. And this is now all too much for Saul to take. And so what we read here is that the fear level increases again. Look at verse 29. Saul, and it says here, was still more afraid of David. The, the fear level is now, it's, it's running out of control. And the hostility deepens. Verse 29 tells us this. It actually says, David from this day became Saul's enemy. And then what happens next is even more tragic. Because Saul, we're into the start of chapter 19. Saul now starts speaking openly about killing David. It's no longer a personal thing. It's no longer just his own family. He's now starting to tell it out. He tells Jonathan. He tells his servants, according to verse 1, that he has it in for David. But given Jonathan's close connection to David, he reasons with his dad. And he actually reminds Saul of the amazing things that David has done for him. Listen, listen, this this guy, David, has done so much for you in your service. And incredibly, it seems that, that Saul listens to his son. And he changes his mind. And he decides to let David live. Verse 6 of chapter 19. David goes back to pick up his role as Saul's music therapist. But in verse 10... The darkness descends again, and Saul tries to pin him to the wall. David escapes again, and then Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch over him, is what it says, but also with the intention of killing him the next morning. You see, the circle of people that Saul is dragging into this mess just keeps widening. So he calls a group of people together and says, go and and, and watch over David, but in the morning I want you to kill him. David's wife, Michal, intervenes. But unlike her brother, Jonathan, she doesn't actually go direct to her father. She actually circumvents her father. And she helps David escape via the bedroom window. Probably that way because these messengers that Saul has sent to watch over David are standing outside the front door. So Michal gets David out through the bedroom window and he runs. 
But Michal goes further. She places, and this is brilliant, she places a kind of dummy in the bed. Look at this. Verses 13 and 14. She takes an idol, she puts clothes on it, and she sticks goat's hair on it for hair. The messengers come in to kill David. Michal shows him, shows them that David is actually lying in his bed sick. They go back to Saul and say, listen, Saul, David's lying in his deathbed almost. He's sick. And so Saul says, tell you what, bring the bed and all to me and I'll kill him. But you see, the thing is, David's long gone. And all that's lying in the bed when they bring it to Saul is an elaborate hoax. And Michal covers her tracks by implying, listen, Dad, if I hadn't let David go, he was going to kill me. And Saul seems to buy this story and therefore doesn't appear to deal with his daughter. At least there's no record of it here. And in the rest of the chapter, we read that, that Saul traces David's movements. Despite the fact he's done a runner, Saul somehow traces his movements discovers where he's at and comes after him himself eventually. It honestly is an incredible story. But let's back up for a moment because I want us to go back to the bedroom scene because you see right at the center of all this is God. And if there is one phrase that I just want every single one of us to take away this evening, it is that phrase I've already mentioned. Here's the one phrase I just want you to take away. The Lord was with him. And here's the thing. David knew it. Okay? David knew it, or at least he sensed it. And the reason I can say that with confidence is based on the psalm that Glenis actually opened our service by reading from. So let me invite you to turn to Psalm 15a. It's page 577. And when you get there, I want you to look at what's written across the top of the psalm in certain Bibles, maybe, maybe not in the Pew Bible necessarily, I'm not sure. Psalm 59. But what's written across the top of it, I'm just trying to look to see if it is. Yeah, it is actually. For the director of music, to the tune off, do not destroy, whatever that was, of David, so written by him, Amit, Amik Tam. And here's the bit. Here's when David wrote it. When Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. You see, David wrote Psalm 59 at some point during this near-death incident. And it provides us with so much of an insight into David's understanding of God. Now, I know we could spend another 20 minutes uh, going through that psalm, but I don't want to do that, can't do that. But here's a line from it that gets repeated. Look at verse 9, look at verse 10, look at verse 17. Here's what David says. You are my strength, God. I will sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress. My God, on whom I can rely. And if you look up at the second half of verse 16, here's what he says. You are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. Not from trouble, 
in trouble. You see, the Lord was with David, yes. But the critical thing is, David knew it. David was aware of God's presence and character. He cried out to him. He needed him. But he cried out to him in awareness. And so as I finish, what about us this evening? David's story is, is radically different from any of ours, thankfully. And we don't need to, and we're not called to share his exact experiences, but you know something? We can know David's God. He's still the same. He's still our strength. He's still our fortress. He's still our refuge. He's still our stronghold. He's still an ever-present help in times of trouble. And so we can rely on him to work out his purposes in our lives. Listen, we cannot control what others think of us or how they react to us. And we don't know what tomorrow holds. As I said at the start, David, David it all started so well. He had a run of good days. But David didn't know what the next day held. He went from hero to fugitive in a very short space of time. But what we can be confident about is this. I know what God thinks of me. I know how much I mean to God. I know that God is with me. I know that my future is in his hands. And so even when I face mess and trouble and challenges and giants and hurdles and people who don't like me, even though I've done nothing wrong, God is still God. Refuge, strength, ever-present help, working out his purposes in my life. And so, like David, Let's pray, let's write psalms, let's sing them, and let's remain focused on our God. The story continues.